0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're constantly running into stories that don't quite make a full show, and our research barrel is overflowing with them, so we decided to turn them loose on you for your enjoyment. This collection of stories, titled Urban Legends and Historical Tidbits, is sure to enlighten you as to the truth of some of the tall tales you might have heard friends talking about or that you may have seen on the internet as well as provide you with a chuckle or two. We hope you enjoy hearing these as much as we enjoyed researching and telling them. And the next time you find yourself at a campfire gathering, you'll have some new stories to share. Oh, and by the way, we'll be doing a part two, so don't hesitate to share some new ideas on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. The first story is an urban legend provided by David Emery, urban legends expert at urbanlegends.about.com. This from the Stupid Criminals file. Police in Radnor, Pennsylvania interrogated a suspect by placing a metal colander on his head and connecting it with wires to a photocopy machine. The message, He's Lying was placed in the copier, and the police pressed the copy button each time they thought the suspect wasn't telling the truth. Believing the lie detector was working, the suspect confessed. Though the basic premise isn't all that implausible, we have reason to believe, thanks to documentation provided by Jan Harold Brunvand in his 1993 book, The Baby Train, that the specifics of the story above may be false. Brunvond contacted the police chief of Radnor, Pennsylvania, where most versions of the story say the colander copier caper took place and was told that despite repeated claims to the contrary in publications dating from the late 1970s on, no such incident ever occurred in that township. We also, interestingly enough, have reason to believe the story may be true. According to a letter written by Brunvand in 1993 by Judge Isaac Garb, who says he presided over the case in question, the sequence of events occurred pretty much as stated. Quote, I can confirm the veracity of the Collender polygraph, Garb wrote. The matter came before me in court on a motion to suppress the confession. Indeed, the only major discrepancy between Garb's account and the anecdotal version is the specified location. Most variants, including those published in newspapers, name Radnor Township, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, as the setting. Garb says it took place in Warminster Township, Bucks County, which would account for the Radnor police chief's denial. Judge Garb's letter was published in Jan Harold Brunvon's 2001 book, Too Good to Be True, The Colossal Book of Urban Legends. The item's earliest appearance in print was in the July 22, 1977 edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer, which named a small police department in Bucks County as the locale. Four months later, this version was distributed nationwide by UPI. This is dated November 18th, 1977. Headline. There's still one born every minute. Radnor, PA, UPI. The police department here recently was told by a Bucks County judge that a Xerox machine cannot be used as a lie detector. Detectives bent on obtaining a confession pretended an office copier was a lie detector after a suspect agreed to undergo a polygraph test. Prior to interrogation, the sleuths placed a typewritten card in the machine reading, He's lying. The suspect was seated near the copier. A metal colander was fastened to his head, and wires ran from the colander to the Xerox machine. Each time investigators received answers they did not fancy, they pushed the copy button. Out came the message, He's lying. Convinced that the machine was infallible, the suspect finally confessed. Judge Ira Garb threw the case out of court. It's the kind of comic relief we need around here once in a while, the judge laughed. The incident was brought up again for comic relief in a March 13, 1978 Chicago Tribune feature on the societal impact of photocopy machines. The top prize for imaginative use of copiers, wrote reporter Paul Weingarten, goes to detectives in Radnor, PA. They put a colander on the head of one unsuspecting suspect and hooked it to the Xerox machine, but they told the suspect that the machine was a lie detector he bought it. Variations on the fake polygraph trick have been used as a subplot in episodes of several TV crime series, including Homicide, Life on the Street, The Wire, and The Unusuals. Our verdict, this urban legend has a grain of truth. Next, the story of The Hook. Is there any truth to it? This popular campfire tale has been retold in a bunch of books and movies, including a retelling by Bill Murray in the 1979 movie meatballs here's how the story goes a young couple's out parked on a country road the girl is real nervous and uneasy it seems there had been a report about an escaped criminal in the area he was supposed to be dangerous a mad killer They called him the hook because one of his hands was missing and he wore a hook in place of it he was supposed to have used it on all his victims anyway the girl was real uneasy for some reason supposedly they were not aware of the escaped killer she kept saying she had an uneasy feeling but she did not know why the guy finally got mad at her he thought she was just making up excuses because she didn't want to park finally he lost his temper and stepped on the gas he really tore out of there fast he didn't say a word on the way home when they got to the girl's house he just got out and went around to open her door when he got to the door there was a bloody hook hanging on the handle. The origin of the story, according to popular lore, bloody hooks have been left hanging on car doors since the mid-fifties. It's possible the roots of legends like the hook lie in distorted memories of real-life Lovers Lane murders. There were actual cases of kids who'd gone necking, coming back in pine boxes. The residue of news stories about those events would likely remain around for a while, Mutating into cautionary tales with the addition of bloody hooks and scraping sounds on the roof of the car. There was a series of Lovers Lanes murders that happened in Texarkana in 1946 that might have inspired these tales. And later, Son of Sam put a stop to teen parking in the New York area for a long time. Real life roots or not, the hook has been a legend for almost as long as anyone can remember. The Hook is a cautionary tale about teenage sexuality, unspoken in the story is the realization that if the girl hadn't said no, hadn't insisted upon leaving right away, the couple would have been killed. Two close calls reverted that night, the fatal encounter with the killer, and going all the way. Refusal to do one saves the pair from the other, the perfect morality tale with a simple motto, no nookie, no hookie. This urban legend, although likely inspired by actual Lover's Lane's killings, has no documented truth behind it. I remember hearing this next one, and until now, I thought it had happened in my hometown of Virginia Beach, at the food line on Virginia Beach Boulevard. Wow, I had no idea it was an urban legend, until now. The legend, The Killer Biscuits. The story as I first heard it. There was a sweet older lady who would often do grocery shopping for the infirm and elderly in our church. One hot summer day, she parked her car in front of the food store nearest our church and went in to get some food items and get some get-well cars for a friend, a mission that took quite a bit of time. When she was done, she took her groceries out to her car and piled them on the passenger seat. It was a very hot day, and the inside of the car was smoldering. She rolled down the windows, turned the key in the ignition, and heard a loud pop, feeling a jolt on the right side of her head. She put a hand to the side of her head, a surge of panic hit her as she felt a gooey mess there. She was frozen with shock in her seat, with the car still running, her hand still clutching the side of her head. When a good Samaritan approached her and asked if she was okay, she answered faintly, I think I've been shot. The passerby immediately called 911, and within minutes the paramedics were there. They removed her hand from the side of her head and quickly realized that the shot was caused by a can of biscuit dough that had exploded at the top of the shopping bag and connected with the side of her head. She was taken to a hospital and treated for shock, then released in fine condition a few hours later. Does this story have any truth? Here's a story from an AP headline titled, Killer Biscuits Wanted for Attempted Murder. This is the actual AP headline. Lisa Burnett, 23, a resident of San Diego, was visiting her in-laws and while there went to a nearby supermarket to pick up some groceries. Several people noticed her sitting in her car with the windows rolled up and with her eyes closed and with both hands behind the back of her head. One customer who had been at the store for a while became concerned and walked over to the car. He noticed that Lisa's eyes were now open and she looked very strange. He asked her if she was okay, and Lisa replied that she'd been shot in the back of the head and had been holding her brains in for over an hour. The man called the paramedics, who broke into the car because the doors were locked, and Lisa refused to remove her hands from her head. When they finally got in, they found that Lisa had a wad of bread dough on the back of her head. A Pillsbury biscuit canister had exploded from the heat, making a loud noise that sounded like a gunshot, and the wad of dough had hit her in the back of her head. When she reached back to find out what it was, she felt the dough and thought it was her brains. She initially passed out, but quickly recovered and tried to hold her brains in for over an hour, until someone noticed and came to her aid. Lisa is blonde. Our verdict? Just an urban legend. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Our next urban legend actually starts with this bricklayer's accident report. This is a bricklayer's accident report which was printed in the newsletter of the British equivalent of the Workers' Compensation Board. It's for you to decide, truth or urban legend. Dear Sir, I am writing in response to your request for additional information in Block 3 of the accident report form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You asked for a fuller explanation, and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident i was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building when i completed my work i found i had some bricks left over which when weighed later were found to be slightly in excess of 500 pounds rather than carry the bricks down by hand i decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley which was attached to the side of the building on the sixth floor securing the rope at ground level i went up to the roof swung the barrel out and loaded the bricks into it then i went down and untied the rope holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of bricks you will note in block 11 of the accident report form that i weigh 135 pounds due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly i lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope needless to say i proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel which was now proceeding downward at an equally impressive speed. This explains the fractured skull, minor abrasions, and the broken collarbone as listed in Section 3 of the accident report form. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of the excruciating pain I was now beginning to experience. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Now devoid of the weight of the bricks, that barrel weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer to you again, my weight. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building, In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles, broken tooth, and severe lacerations of my legs and lower body. Here my luck began to change slightly. The encounter with the barrel seemed to slow me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks, and fortunately only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, as I lay there on the pile of bricks, in pain, unable to move, I again lost my composure and presence of mind, and then let go of the rope. And I lay there watching the empty barrel begin its journey back down toward me. This explains the two broken legs. I hope this answers your inquiry. Our verdict. No known documentation exists. This is purely urban legend. Our next story. Did you ever hear the story about the alleged radio transmission between the USS Nimitz and a Canadian lighthouse? Here's how it went, and there have been many variants. This is a so-called actual transcript of a US naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. This radio conversation was released by the Chief of Naval Operations on 10/10/95, so it says. USS Nimitz, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz, the largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse, your call. From Snopes.com, the origins of this story. The tale of the self-important aircraft carrier captain getting his well-earned comeuppance at the hands of a plain-speaking lighthouse has been making the rounds on the Internet since early 1996. Most write-ups purport to be transcripts of a 1995 conversation between a ship and a lighthouse as documented by Chief of Naval Operations. It ain't true. Not only does the Navy disclaim it, the anecdote appears in a 1992 collection of jokes and tall tales. Worse, it appears in Stephen Covey's 1989, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he got it from a 1987 issue of Proceedings, a publication of the U.S. Naval Institute. It's far older than that, as this excerpt from a 1939 book shows. The fog was very thick, and the chief officer of the Tramp Steamer was peering over the side of the bridge. Suddenly, to his intense surprise, he saw a man leaning over a rail only a few yards away. "'You confounded fool!' he roared. "'Where the devil do you think your ship's going? Don't you know I've got the right of way?' Out of the gloom came a sardonic voice. "'This ain't no blinking ship, Governor.' This here's a lighthouse. Our next story, titled The Declaration of Financial Independence. This one also comes from Snopes. The claim here, A lucky bargain hunter became a millionaire after finding an original print of the Declaration of Independence in the frame of an old painting. Urban legendary includes numerous windfall tales involving fortuitous discoveries of seemingly ordinary objects that proved to be extraordinarily valuable. Every now and then, one of these windfall things turns out to be one for real, however. In 1989, a Philadelphia financial analyst bought an old painting. It was a depiction of a country scene for $4 at a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, mostly because he liked the frame. He liked it even more once he found that the painting housed a rare and valuable document. The buyer was investigating a tear in the canvas and the frame fell apart in his hands when he attempted to detach it from the painting, leading him to discover a folded document which appeared to be an old copy of the Declaration of Independence stored between the canvas and its wood backing. After a friend who collected Civil War memorabilia advised him to have it appraised, He learned that the document was, in fact, a rare original Dunlap Broadside, one of 500 official copies from the first printing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Only 23 similar copies were known to exist before this find, of which a mere two were privately owned. This rare document was offered for sale by Sotheby's on 4th of June, 1991, and the lucky find fetched even more than had been anticipated. The $800,000 to $1.2 million estimate turned into a $2.42 million sale by the sound of the gavel. This was a record for any printed Americana, said David Redden, the auctioneer, who was a senior vice president at Sotheby's in Manhattan. It was far and away the highest price for historical Americana ever. The copy, sold by Sotheby's, is a crisp, clean broadside creased along lines where it had been folded. It was printed by John Dunlop on July 4, 1776, to carry news of America's independence to the citizens of the 13 colonies. It is one of 24 known copies of the Declaration, and one of only three remaining in private hands. The previous owner, who was not identified, had told Sotheby's he bought a torn painting for $4 in a flea market in Adamstown, PA because he was interested in its frame. When he got home, he said, he removed the painting, a dismal country scene, and concluded the frame could not be salvaged, but found the declaration, folded and hidden in the backing. He showed it to Sotheby's experts earlier this year. Mr. Redden said he thought the man rather stunned to learn the price it had brought. This story is called King of the Road, The claim, a motorcycle enthusiast buys an old machine, then discovered the bike once belonged to Elvis Presley and sells it for millions of dollars. This is a windfall legend again, pure and simple. A tale of an ordinary Joe's being in the right place at the right time to have good fortune handed to him. We want to believe in the legendary Harley because we can then believe magic could touch us at any time. And in that lies the key to this legend's tellability. Most often, this legend is told about a machine inscribed, To Elvis, love, Priscilla. But sometimes the bike is said to have been a gift from Elvis to James Dean. How much was paid for it is also subject to variation. Anything from 300000 to $2.2 million has been mentioned. The buyer is either said to be the Harley-Davidson company or Jay Leno of Tonight Show fame. An Elvis Presley-James Dean pairing is rather unlikely, because at the time of James Dean's death in an automobile accident in 1955, neither young man was yet a major entertainment figure. The two films that propelled James Dean to stardom, Giant and Rebel Without a Cause, were released posthumously, and in September 1955, Elvis Presley was still largely a regional act, recording for a small Memphis-based record label and playing live shows around the South at venues that included high school gyms. At that point in his career, Elvis would probably not have lavished such an expensive gift on someone who was then only a relatively minor TV and film star. Jay Leno has categorically stated that his only connection with this tall tale is people asking him about it. Have you heard the story about the Rockingham County farmer who bought an old Harley Davidson motorcycle at a yard sale and discovered, To Elvis, Love Priscilla, written under the seat? Then he sold it to Jay Leno, late-night talk show host, who handed over $1 million for the bike. Well, Leno's heard it. Yesterday, I got a call that it was an old farmer in Pennsylvania that had it, he said. Then two weeks ago, Texas Monthly Magazine called because I'd bought it from a farmer there. Leno has one thing to say. I don't buy show business memorabilia. In 2000, Leno said he had been getting a couple calls a week for the past six to eight months about the story, which he called an urban fairy tale perpetuated in part by the Internet. On 22nd January, during that evening's airing of The Tonight Show, he once again disclaimed the rumor. Additionally, Todd Morgan, a spokesman at Graceland in Memphis, said none of the long-lost Harley stories was true. If not Leno, maybe the Harley-Davidson company bought the bike. Nope. They've less need than anyone to buy an Elvis motorcycle now because they already have one. A 1956 Harley-Davidson KH that belonged to the King and was purchased from Fleming Home by Harley-Davidson in 1995 is now housed at their archive facility in Milwaukee. Elvis had other motorcycles too, five of which, four Harleys and one Honda, are at the Graceland Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Harley Davidson has lots of fun trying to set people straight about this legend. A 1996 newspaper article relates the difficulties they've had. Here's the article First, the undead Elvis was seen all across America. A St. Louis housewife even saw the king at a movie theater here. I read that in a supermarket tabloid, so I know it's true. Now, Elvis's Harley is turning up all around the USA. The king's hog brings fabulous wealth to the fan who finds it. I'm proud to say I have the Harley bike story worth the most money, $4 million. That number is confirmed by the Harley-Davidson folks. I heard the story from my friend Richard, who believes it is true. This could only happen in America, he said. Here's Richard's story. This friend of a friend of my daughter was riding along a back road when he saw an old motorcycle for sale, Richard said. It was a 1950s Harley for 600 The bike needed work, but he bought it. He couldn't get parts, the bike was so old. So he called Harley headquarters in Milwaukee. He described the Harley. He kept getting transferred from person to person. Each time, they'd asked what the Harley looked like. Finally, the CEO of Harley came on the line. He asked the guy to describe the Harley again. Then he told him to go out and check under the rear fender. That's where he found an inscription beginning, It was Elvis's Harley Davidson, a gift from somebody. Harley offered him $4 million for it. Imagine that, Richard said. $4 million for a bike he found by the road. It's like winning the lottery. Is there a chance in a million that this story is true? Elvis' collectibles go for major money. His 1969 American Express card was auctioned for 41000 And it was expired. Elvis only held it in his hand. Think what you could get for something he'd wrapped his knees around. Elvis did ride Harleys, and he rode them hard. Lamar Fike, a member of the Memphis Mafia, Elvis's entourage, says he and Elvis used to ride their Harleys 110 miles an hour on what is now Elvis Presley Boulevard. One misty afternoon in 1957, they had to slow down for a bus. Lamar and his Harley slid under the bus. Lamar was lucky. He only lost some leather off his jacket. He lived to tell this story to Alana Nash for her book, Elvis Aaron Presley. Elvis's Harley was untouched. Was it the one Richard's friend of a friend found on the back road? Richard tried to find the new Harley millionaire for me. Here's the friend of other friends, Richard said. Nobody knows his name. If I got 4000000 million, I'd keep my name quiet too. Richard was sure Harley Davidson would remember this high-priced buy. I called Harley headquarters in Milwaukee and got transferred from person to person, just like the guy in the story. I didn't end up with the Harley CEO. I got Nola Vander Muehlen with Harley Public Relations. We've received so many calls on the Elvis Harley, she said. Is the story true? No, it's an urban legend. We hear about it all the time from all over. Usually the Harley is found in a barn or bought at a garage sale. The buyer lifts up the seat and looks at the fender and sees this inscription, to Elvis from Priscilla. Most stories say we buy it for anywhere from half a million to a million dollars. You came up with the most money. There is some truth to the tale. We did purchase Elvis' own personal Harley, Nola said, but it belonged to a collector who knew what it was. The bike was well documented. How much did Harley pay for it? I don't know, and if I did, I couldn't say. $4 million, I asked. Nola laughed and laughed, which I took for a no. The Harley bike story does skid by the truth, but the actual facts are king-size disappointment. The legendary Elvis deserves better. I can only hope that somewhere there's an undiscovered Harley. I'll ask Elvis next time he's in town to see a movie. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Here's an interesting urban legend, this one from London. The monarchy has gone to the birds. Apparently six ravens, and big ones at that, hold the key to the future of the monarchy. This centuries-old legend came to light recently when a fox was able to kill off two of a family of eight ravens kept in the Tower of London. From the Telegraph, October 2013. Future of the monarchy rocked as fox kills Tower of London's guardian ravens. It was a week during which the future of the monarchy looked even more secure, thanks to the royal christening. But unbeknownst to members of the royal family cooing over Prince George, another event has shaken the foundations of the British monarchy to their very core. An urban fox attacked and killed two ravens in the Tower of London where, according to superstition, there must be six of the birds or else the monarchy, the kingdom, and the tower itself will fall. The unfortunate ravens, Jubilee and Grip, were snatched and eaten just before they were due to be locked up in their cages overnight. A spokeswoman for historic royal palaces said, Raven deaths at the tower are not common, with many ravens living long, healthy lives here. Currently, we have eight ravens at the tower. The legend mentions six ravens, and we like to have two extra. She added, We take the welfare of the ravens seriously and have been reviewing our current pest control measures. The tower is home to a wide range of wildlife, and foxes often visit the site. Where possible, we work with specialist wildlife groups, such as the RSPCA, to capture the foxes humanely and relocate them away from the tower environs. The jet black birds are known as the guardians of the tower. King Charles II, 1660-1685, effectively created an insurance policy against the prophecy when he decreed There should always be six ravens in the tower. The origins of the myth are unknown and have long puzzled folklorists because birds such as crows and ravens are usually seen as an ill omen rather than good. Jubilee and grip were released into the grounds of the 1,000-year-old royal palace last year as part of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee celebrations. It emerged yesterday they were killed by the fox in May and have now been replaced with ravens with the same names. Fact Ravens have been seen in the Tower of London for centuries. Big ones, we hear. Does less than six mean the end of the monarchy? Let's hope we never find out. Here is the story of Mothman. Mothman is a moth-like creature reportedly seen in the Point Pleasant area of West Virginia from November 15, 1966 to December 15, 1967. The first newspaper report was published in the Point Pleasant Register, dated November 16, 1966, titled, Couples See Man-Sized Bird, Creature, Something. Mothman was introduced to a wider audience by Gray Barker in 1970, later popularized by John Keel in his 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies, claiming that Mothman was related to a wide array of supernatural events in the area and the collapse of the Silver Bridge. The 2002 film, The Mothman Prophecies, starring Richard Gere, was based on Keel's book. On November 12, 1966, five men who were digging a grave at a cemetery near Clendenin, West Virginia, claimed to see a man-like figure fly low from the trees over their heads. This is often identified as the first known sighting of what became known as the Mothman. Shortly thereafter, on November 15, 1966, two young couples from Point Pleasant Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Mallett told police they saw a large white creature whose eyes glowed red when the car headlights picked it up. They described it as a large flying man with 10-foot wings following their car while they were driving in an area outside of town known as the TNT area, the site of a former World War II munitions plant. During the next few days, other people reported similar sightings. Two volunteer firemen who sighted it said it was a large bird with red eyes. Mason County Sheriff George Johnson commented that he believed the sightings were due to an unusually large heron he termed a shite poke. Contractor Newell Partridge told Johnson that when he aimed a flashlight at the creature in a nearby field, its eyes glowed like bicycle reflectors and blamed buzzing noises from his television set and the disappearance of his German Shepherd dog on the creature. Wildlife biologist Dr. Robert L. Smith at West Virginia University told reporters that descriptions and sightings all fit the sandhill crane crane almost as high as a man, the seven-foot wingspan featuring circles of reddish coloring around the eyes and that the bird may have wandered out of its migration route. There were no Mothman reports in the immediate aftermath of the December 15, 1967 collapse of the Silver Bridge and the death of 46 people giving rise to legends that the Mothman sightings and the bridge collapse were connected. Folklorist Jan Harold Brunban notes that Mothman has been widely covered in the popular press, some claiming sightings connected with UFOs and others claiming that a military storage site was Mothman's home. Brunban notes that recountings of the 1966-67 Mothman reports usually state that at least 100 people saw Mothman, with many more, afraid to report their sightings, but observed that written sources for such stories consisted of children's books or sensationalized or undocumented accounts that failed to quote identifiable persons. Brumbon found elements in common among many Mothman reports and much older folk tales, suggesting that something real may have triggered the scares and became woven with existing folklore. He also records anecdotal tales of Mothman supposedly attacking the roofs of parked cars inhabited by teenagers. Ufologist Jerome Clark writes that many years after the initial events, members of the Ohio UFO Investigators League re-interviewed several people who claimed to have seen Mothman, all of whom insisted their stories were accurate. Linda Scarberry claimed that she and her husband had seen Mothman hundreds of times, sometimes at close range, commenting, it seems like it doesn't want to hurt you. It just wants to communicate with you. Cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman claims that sightings of Mothman continue, and told USA Today he re-interviewed witnesses described in Keel's book, who said Mothman was a huge creature about seven feet tall with huge wings and red eyes, and that they could see the creature flapping right behind them as they fled from it. Some ufologists, paranormal authors, and cryptozoologists believe that Mothman was an alien, a supernatural manifestation, or an unknown cryptid. In his 1975 book The Mothman Prophecies, author John Keel claimed that the Point Pleasant residents experienced precognitions including premonitions of the collapse of the Silver Bridge, unidentified flying object sightings, visits from inhuman or threatening men in black, and other bizarre phenomena. Mothman was supposedly seen a month before the destruction of the Twin Towers and six hours before the I-35W bridge collapsed. However, Keel has been criticized for distorting established data and for gullibility. It's up to you to decide if Mothman is real or not. And last but not least, the Jersey Devil. The Jersey Devil is a legendary creature or cryptid said to inhabit the Pine Barrens of southern New Jersey, United States. The creature is often described as a flying biped with hooves, but there are many different variations. The common description is that of a kangaroo-like creature with the head of a goat, leathery bat-like wings, horns, small arms with clawed hands, cloven hooves, and a forked tail. It has been reported to move quickly and often is described as emitting a blood-curdling scream. The Lenape tribes called the area Popwessing, meaning Place of the Dragon. Swedish explorers later named it Drake kill, Drake being the word for dragon, and kill meaning channel or arm of the sea, like a river or a stream in Dutch. A popular origin of the story is as follows It was said that Mother Leeds had 12 children, and after finding she was pregnant for the 13th time, stated that this one would be the devil. In 1735, Mother Leeds was in labor on a stormy night gathered around her were her friends mother Leeds was supposedly a witch and the child's father was the devil himself the child was born normal but then changed it changed from a normal baby to a creature with hooves a goat's head bat wings and a forked tail it growled and screamed then killed the midwife before flying up the chimney it circled the villages and headed toward the pines in 1740 a clergy exercised the demon for a hundred years and it wasn't seen again until 1890. Mother Leeds had been identified by some as Deborah Leeds. On grounds that Deborah Leeds' husband, Japhet Leeds, named 12 children in the will he wrote in 1736, which is compatible with the legend. Deborah and Jaffet Leeds also lived in the Leeds Point section of what is now Atlantic County, New Jersey, which is commonly the location of the Jersey Devil story. Brian Regal, a historian of science at Keene University, wrote that Mother Leeds was merely part of the popular legend of the Jersey devil created in the 20th century. Regal contends that long-forgotten colonial-era political intrigue involving the early New Jersey politician and rival Almanac publisher Daniel Leeds led to the Leeds family being portrayed as political and religious monsters, and it was his negative portrayal as the Leeds devil rather than any actual creature that spawned the later legend of the Jersey Devil. According to Regal, references to the Jersey Devil do not appear in newspapers or other printed material until the 20th century. The first major flap came in 1909. It is from these sightings that the popular image of the creature, bat-like wings, horse head, claws, and the general air of a dragon, became standardized. Brian Dunning of Skeptoid also wrote that the Leeds Devil was likely created to discredit Daniel Leeds. There have been many claims of sightings and occurrences allegedly involving the Jersey Devil. According to a legend of unknown origin, while visiting the Hanover Millworks to inspect his cannonballs being forged, Commodore Stephen Decatur sighted a flying creature flapping its wings and fired a cannonball directly upon it to no effect. Joseph Bonaparte, the elder brother of Napoleon, is also claimed to have witnessed the Jersey Devil while hunting on his Bordentown estate around 1820. In 1840, the Devil was blamed for several livestock killings. Similar attacks were reported in 1841, accompanied by tracks and screams. There unfortunately tends to be a lack of citations contemporary with the supposed events. Claims of a corpse matching the Leeds Devil description arose in Greenwich in December 1925. A local farmer shot an unidentified animal as it attempted to steal his chickens. Afterward, he claimed that none of 100 people he showed it to could identify it. On July 27th, 1937, an unknown animal with red eyes seen by the residents of Downingtown, Pennsylvania, was compared to the Jersey Devil by a reporter for the Pennsylvania Bulletin on July 28, 1937. In 1951, a group of Gibbstown, New Jersey boys claimed to have seen a monster matching the devil's description and claims of a corpse matching the Jersey Devil's description arose in 1957. In 1960, tracks and noises heard near May's Landing were claimed to be from the Jersey Devil. During the same year, the merchants around Camden offered a $10,000 reward for the capture of the Jersey Devil, even offering to build a private zoo to house the creature if captured. During the week of January 16th through 23rd, 1909, newspapers of the time published hundreds of claimed encounters with the Jersey Devil from all over the state. Among alleged encounters publicized that week were claims the creature attacked a trolley car in Haddon Heights and a social club in Camden. Police in Camden and Bristol, Pennsylvania, supposedly fired on the creature, to no effect. Other reports initially concerned unidentified footprints in the snow, but soon sightings of creatures resembling the Jersey Devil were being reported throughout South Jersey and as far away as Delaware and Western Maryland. The widespread newspaper coverage led to a panic throughout the Delaware Valley, prompting a number of schools to close and workers to stay home. During this period, it is rumored that the Philadelphia Zoo posted a $10,000 reward for the creature's dung. The offer prompted a variety of hoaxes, as you can imagine, including a kangaroo with artificial wings. Skeptics believe the Jersey Devil to be nothing more than a creative manifestation of the English settlers. Boogeyman stories created and told by bored Pine Barren residents as a form of children's entertainment, and rumors arising from negative perceptions of the local population, they called pineys. Folklorist Jan Harold Brumvod wrote that the spread of contemporary pop culture has overtaken traditional Jersey Devil legends. Jeff Bruner of the Humane Society of New Jersey thinks the Sand Hill Crane is the basis of the Jersey Devil stories, adding, there are no photographs, no bones, no hard evidence whatsoever, and worst of all, no explanation of its origins that doesn't require belief in the supernatural. Outdoorsman and author Tom Brown, Jr., spent several seasons living in the wilderness of the Pine Barrens. He recounts occasions when terrified hikers mistook him for the Jersey Devil after he covered his whole body with mud to repel mosquitoes. One New Jersey group called the Devil Hunters refer to themselves as official researchers of the Jersey Devil and devote time to collecting reports, visiting historic sites, and going on nocturnal hunts in the Pine Barrens in order to find proof that the Jersey Devil does in fact exist. I'm going to have to stop now. Something big with wings just flew by my window. We hope you enjoyed Urban Legends and other historical tidbits. You can find all our episodes at www.1001storiespodcast.com and we enjoy hearing from you at facebook.com/1001heroes. Remember to share our show with others. That's how we grow. Until then, this is your host and storyteller John Hagedorn, and this is our story.